Lord, we thank you that we even have the privilege of being able to call you, Lord, to call your name, to, to sing out Hosanna, the one who saves us. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for that truth, Lord, that, that we don't worship a philosophy or a way of life, but we worship the one who has saved us. Lord, as we open your word tonight, I pray that that reality would be first and foremost on our mind, that we would remember, Lord, who we are, the redeemed people of God, who you are, the King of kings, the great I am, but the Redeemer, the Savior, and now somehow the Father and the Friend. God, we are so humbled by those truths. I pray, God, you would guide us even as we open your word tonight. Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. 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 Hey, guys, have a seat. Grab your Bible, Mark chapter 3. And I have... Um, some good news, or I guess it could be some bad news, depending on your perspective, where you're coming from. Um, tonight, um, really have some cool stuff to look into as we move into this chapter. And uh, in particular, I had planned tonight to spend some time looking at uh, the story uh, that's really contained in verse 13 through 21 when Jesus calls and names his apostles. Um, and, and what I want to do with that. Um, is going to take some work. It's going to take some time to kind of go through and, and really get an idea of what's going on in there and how that applies to us. I think it's going to be really encouraging and really cool. Um, but what I'm really passionate about out of this passage, if you just said, what's the coolest thing? Like you can go and learn some new thing and go, oh, check that out. That would, that would be verses 13 through 21. But if you said, what, what is it that you're really passionate about right now, Jeff? Like what's, what when you read chapter 3 gets you fired up. Um, it's verses 1 through 6. And um, what I ended up deciding to do about 30 minutes ago <laughs> is um, I had like, literally, I had like six pages of notes to be able to teach all the way through verse 21. But I decided to force myself to only bring two. And we're just going to, we're just going to do verses 1 through 6 tonight and let that one passage and its very important truth just sit on us for the week, and then we'll go into the next passage starting next week. So I have warned the people in the kids' ministry that I'm going to go short, um, which I've done before and then never actually gone short. So, um, but, but tonight, <laughs> tonight, so we're only going to be doing six verses tonight. And um, so we're in Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6. Um, and I have a couple of things too, just by way of announcements that I need to throw at you guys as well. Um, one of them is with regards to um, setup help and kids wing help, particularly um, on Wednesday nights. Um, a lot of people, in light of what we've been studying on the weekends in First Corinthians thirteen and or First Corinthians twelve, and gifts and serving and ministering to the church, have talked about well, what are the needs in the church? How can I get involved? And there are two. There's there's lots of areas that you can get involved in the church, um, but two areas where it's like nine one one level. We need help bad right now are the children's ministry and the setup crew. Those two areas have been hemorrhaging people for a little while lately, um, and especially with regards to Wednesday nights. I mean, to the point that we've had discussions like, are we going to have to just not have childcare on Wednesday nights and just do service, and if a kid comes in, that's okay? Um, how are we going to do that? Because we've been so low on help. Um, and men in particular, if you can come early on Wednesday nights, I think they come in at six, if I'm not mistaken, on Wednesday nights to do setup. 
if you can come in early and just help out, that would be a huge blessing. Um, it tends to be the same two or three guys that set up every single week. Um, and like tonight, we just were really low on help. So um, I'm just throwing that out there to you guys. I'm not trying to guilt trip you or any of that. It's just the reality. We need help and we're family and family fills in gaps when family has need, at least uh, in the South where I come from. So um, would really appreciate your help on that. Um, and also, I had originally planned to kind of blow through these first six verses of this chapter tonight because Pastor Sam last week kind of um, took care of the emphasis that these verses have with regards to the Sabbath. Um, Pastor Sam, we were really blessed to have him share with us last week and really kind of go through and, and look at the idea of the Sabbath and Jesus and how those things work together. And so I had originally planned on skipping much of that tonight and, um, for that reason. And I just want to let you guys know in advance that um, on Wednesday nights, at least once a month, Pastor Sam or someone else, but probably Pastor Sam because Jeremy likes to, to really take advantage of the time he has with the youth, is going to be sharing with you guys pretty regularly. Um, I know what it's like to feel that you have a gift and a calling to teach and to not have an avenue by which to use it. I've been there before and it's frustrating and it's difficult. Um, and you don't get the opportunity to grow in your gift. And so I want to make sure that Sam has the opportunity to be able to do that. Um, we, we're not just going to teach about discipleship here. We're going to actually make disciples, and that's one way that I get to do that with him. Um, someone who has a heart one day to go plant a church himself. I want him to even be more prepared than I was, um, which wouldn't be hard. But, um, but that's our goal. So I thank you for your guys' understanding and your encouragement with Sam on that. Um, so here we go. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to go. And again, he entered the synagogue. He is Jesus, in case you were wondering. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. God, I pray you'd speak to us through this passage, Lord. I pray, God, you would guide even my very words, that nothing would be said apart from your heart. And if it is, Lord, that it wouldn't be remembered. But that, God, your word and your spirit would be our teacher tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is all we're going to cover tonight, six verses. Um, what I want to talk to you guys about and what we've been doing as we've been going through the book of Mark is we're trying to look at what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? How does Jesus lead people? How do those Jesus' leading respond to him? How do those things go? That's really our bullseye focus as we're going through these things. We'll touch on other stuff as well, but that's our real primary motivation as we're going through this. But this particular story is, seems at, at first glance a little uh, more difficult to do that with because there's no direct reference to the disciples in this particular story. The apostles don't play a role uh, we assume that they're there, but they're not starring figures in this particular story. Really, you have Jesus, 
you have the Pharisees, you have the man with the withered hand, and then we would assume some sort of congregation that's there at the synagogue at that time. And that's all that's actually listed. But we're going to look at this from the standpoint of who is the follower of Jesus in this story? Or in other words, who is the one whom Jesus makes whole? Who's the one whose life is forever changed after his interaction with Jesus? That is definitely something that should be descriptive of a follower of, of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So in this particular story, if we're going, so who's the disciple, the follower, the person who Jesus changes in this story? Well, it's obviously the man with the withered hand, correct? So what we want to do is we want to look at what's going on here. Let's consider him and his weakness. Let's consider kind of the fallout of this story and the events leading up to it and how Jesus interacts with him as opposed to with the others in the room. So we have a story of a man who comes to synagogue with a withered or deformed hand. Maybe you've seen people even in our day and age that have a similar type ailment. Um, muscles just have either um, atrophied and kind of gone away or maybe it was a deformity from birth. We don't really know for sure what that is. Um, But clearly his hand is not normal in its size, strength, capacity, or abilities. And that's, that's a difficulty even in this day and age, just on appearance level alone, wouldn't we say? I mean, most people that have those sort of what might be referred to as deformities or whether it's even injuries or scars, whatever it is, that sets them apart from everyone else around. In our culture, we tend to shy away from a lot of things that set us apart from the culture that we're there. And we really do have a culture that screams conformity, Um, though they claim it's individualism and rebellion as they do it. It's a weird, the way they do it, but that's a whole other thing for another time. I'm gonna go short today, I promise. So here we have a guy who has a deformity that human nature would say, I don't want attention because of this. I don't want people to notice me because of this. I don't want people to pay attention to me because of this. I don't want to be singled out or known by this. But he's in Israel in Jesus's day, which takes that to a whole nother level. Because you got to remember, remember the story of the blind man in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where there's a debate going on amongst the Pharisees and the rabbis. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? See, this guy in that particular story, blind since birth, and so the assumption is, well, he's either sinned like in the womb or shortly thereafter, or his parents sinned before he was born, and the the fact that he struggles with a physical ailment is symbolic or is evidence to us of judgment of God upon this guy for sin. That's the way they looked at it. So if you have a deformity, if you have an ailment, if you have some sort of disfigurement, that is a result of sin on your part, your parents' part, someone's part. So now you're this guy with this withered hand. That's kind of hard to hide, typically. It's going to be really easy in small towns and things to be known by that as the guy with the withered hand. There's also a, a certain, certain sense of just almost unfairness that we still to this day refer to the guy as the man with the withered hand. Uh, normal so- societal uh, mores today wouldn't allow us to do such a thing. But this is who he is. And now he's coming to synagogue where when they see him, what do you think they're thinking? What are the rabbis thinking? Like, not only is he different, 
Not only is he uh, not capable in the same way that they are, but this guy would be viewed by everyone else as not just deformed or handicapped or any of those things. They would view him as wicked. Like there was something in his heart that has caused this to happen. They would view him as a recipient of God's judgment. No way would he be considered someone who's a recipient of God's grace. This is a sinner. Why look at his arm. That's the way people would look at him. And so there would be a ton of just judgment, just judgment upon this guy. Um, it would be an incredibly difficult time to live like that. So imagine you're that guy and you come to church and you walk in. And that's the way people are going to think. And that's the way people in your culture have been taught. And that's the thing that you've heard before. Maybe now that's even the thing that you've bought into yourself. So when you come into church, what are you going to do? You're probably not wearing a tank top. You're probably not coming in in a basketball jersey. You're probably coming in arm tucked into the robe. You know, maybe slipped in underneath a jacket just kind of slip into the back so no one's going to notice. You're not sitting down front, I guarantee you, not in that culture. And you're going to be kind of off in hiding like, I just want to come in. We really ought to applaud the guy's faith. The, the fact that he would even come to synagogue at all with the kind of judgmental attitudes and judgment that he's going to be facing is unbelievable. But he comes. And so he's hiding in the back. Now, at the same time, we have a totally different group of characters here. We have the Pharisees. And they're there, it says, it tells us, verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus has already built this reputation of doing things outside of the box, of healing people on the Sabbath, and of meeting these needs. In fact, as we're going to see next week, people are coming from as much as 120 miles away on foot to press upon Jesus when they have ailments, hoping that he's going to heal them. So it's no big surprise by these guys, and so they're watching, but but they're not watching to see it because they want to see an act of God. They're watching because they're just waiting for something that gives them leverage over him. They're waiting for Jesus to break one of their rules. Way more concerned with rule keeping than who's an object of mercy. So it's not like, I hope this guy gets healed. It's, oh, is he going to do it? Because if he does, we're going to bust him. That's the two characters that are going on in this story. And so Jesus calls him in, says, come forward. You got to think that guy had to pause just for a minute. Should I do it? I'm in the back. I'm near the door. I could just bolt because I don't want to go down there. And maybe they'll think he was talking about somebody else or, you know, I mean, can you imagine already nervous coming to church and now they want you to stand up? I mean, look, let's just face it withered hand or not, if I ask you to stand up in front of the crowd at church, you're usually not too pleased with me for doing such a thing, right? So imagine if that's the scenario. If you know that everyone else in the room is judging you and the guy in front just said, hey, come here, come down front. But he gets up, he comes down, incredible um, act of faith or bravery, or maybe he's more afraid of what's gonna happen after the fact, who knows, but he gets up and one foot goes in front of the other, and he makes his way to the front and he stands in front of him, no doubt trembling. You know that like stomach feeling when you know something bad's going down and there's nothing you can do to stop it? That kind of feeling. You don't want to be up there. Especially if the only reason you're being brought up there is that you're about to now display publicly 
the one thing you want no one else to know about. The one thing. You would rather be up there to sing a solo, do a dance, whatever it is. The one thing you're like, just don't ask me to stretch out your arm. And that's what Jesus asks him to do. I mean, it's an incredibly horrifying thing. Incredibly horrifying thing. The one weakness you're ashamed of hiding is the one thing that Jesus says, I want you to stretch it out for everybody to see this. This weekend, when I was teaching, I shared with you guys a story um, about a time that, um, about times, I'm sure, that, it, that have happened where, I don't know if you, were, if you weren't here, this isn't gonna make sense to you at first, but just ride with me. Um, about things that, that times I've taken the stage knowing that there was sin in my heart and that I hadn't dealt with and then I came forward and teach anyway and I kind of went on the story about, about that and um, took opportunity as I've done a few times I think to try to be really open and just share with you guys um, different things that I've wrestled with in the past or that I've gone through. Um, people have encouraged me or what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, been complimentary of me doing that before in the past. And, and I would often tell them, I was like, well, here's the thing. Um, I'm way too social to be too withdrawn from everybody. And so my options are, I either look like I have it all together and then I stay away from everybody all the time so that you can't figure that out, which is gonna fail eventually because I'm just too socially motivated to pull that off for long. Or I just tell you straight up in advance, this is who I am. And if you get upset, I'm like, look, I told you that a long time ago. I don't know why you're still here. You know, it's kind of on you at that point, right? But, but I, I always, this is what's incredible. It's interesting to think through. I always get, when I teach, I always get way more feedback when I tell honest stories about things that I'm going through um, than I do probably with anything else that I ever do or have done as a teacher. I get more feedback from you. Thank you for being real, Pastor Jeff. Oh, thank you for for being normal or for being, you know, things like that. I get more um, encouragement from those kind of things than than anyone else when I just talk about what I'm struggling with. And you know why I think the reason that is? Is because I think every single one of us has a withered hand. I think every single one of us it may not be a, a physical arm thing. In fact, usually, and, and maybe much more detrimentally, it's something that's not real visible to everybody else. It's something that's really easy for us to hide. And, and that, that helps us get away with it a little bit longer. But sometimes we have this tendency to just go, oh man, I can relate to that guy. And I'm, I'm not joking. I will hear and did this weekend infinitely more feedback about that particular story than anything else in the message half the time. It's amazing how that, how that is. Um, and, and this is the reason. Because I think that in a lot of areas, we, Western church, maybe it's in the Eastern church too, I don't know, I haven't been. But we've created a culture that forces us to do what this man with the withered hand does when he comes to synagogue. And that is that when we come to the synagogue and we're coming to learn and we're coming to take in the word, but we have to hide the hand. We, we can't let anybody see the weakness. We can't let anybody see the struggle. We can't let anyone know what's going on there. We, we gotta just kind of hide that and let's walk into the church and just put on sort of this little show. And we've all done that, right? I mean, how many of you have driven to church arguing with your spouse in the car the whole way and the moment the car door opens, 
God bless you, and all the Christian things, blessings on you, and all those Christian phrases. I mean, just suddenly you're like a totally different person. Every single one of us has done that, unless you're just full on Scrooge all the time. But every single one of us has done that, right? Why do we do that? What is it about us that does that? When we know that every one of us has the same sorts of problems, but we pretend like none of us do. What is it about our Christian culture that has done that? Well, if you're taking notes, here's your discipleship note for the night. Disciples and discipleship exist in a culture of humility and repentance. That's your discipleship note. You can check out if you get that sentence. Disciples and discipleship exist in a culture of humility and repentance. And here's what tends to happen. When we come to Jesus, a lot of us, now there's some people out there that have that, I've always been with Jesus, I never, you know, woke up drunk in a tent and didn't know where I was, and uh, you know, the, the, those kind of gnarly stories, some of you don't have that story, some of you have, I got saved in VBS at three, and, and I've just been walking with Jesus ever since. It doesn't mean you're struggle-free, it probably means your struggle is with religion, not with carnality, but, but all of us have some sort of story. And for a lot of us, man, our, either our come to Jesus moment or we've had moments in our life where we've returned to Jesus, if you will, happened when we just bottom out for some reason. Like when we just get to a point that we just admit, I, Lord, have made a total mess of everything without you. I, ha- I don't know what else to do. You are the only place that I can find hope. You are the only place that I can find help. In you, everything makes sense. Apart from you, nothing else makes sense. I repent from that stuff and I just ask you, just save me. Arms out, save me, Lord. For a lot of people, that's their experience coming to Jesus. I I hope to some degree or another that describes all of our experience coming to Jesus. But then what can happen is this subtle, strange shift. It's like now you're in, now you got your membership card, you're now the card-carrying Christian, and then somehow all of a sudden things change into this sort of sanitized, Christianized thing where we needed him to get in, but now we need to prove to everyone else that we've got it together and that we stand on our own two feet and that we don't struggle with stuff anymore. I, sometimes I wonder if that's for fear that we're gonna make Jesus look bad, that he saved us, but now we're not holding up our end of the bargain. And, and the fact that he saved someone that's such a loser just makes Jesus look bad, so I need to hide that because then maybe Jesus isn't powerful because look at this, but I, I don't know where that shift happens. But a lot of times, we get saved, we walk in the door, and then suddenly this, this sanitized, Christianized version of the church comes on where we all have to put on greeter faces and smile, and we just say things are good, and we fake it and lie. It's what it is. We just lie. <laughs> but it's like the forgivable lie, right? Because it's in church. <laughs> it's fellowship. I, I got it all together. But listen. Here's what we need to know. Christianity at its very core is an absolute rejection of that kind of self-dependency. That's what Christianity is. That's why the people Jesus got upset with weren't the sinners who were bowed saying, I need help. It was the ones who came saying, I'm glad I'm not like everyone else 
tax collectors and sinners and people that suffer with stuff out there. I'm glad I'm not like them. And then Jesus says, that's not the kingdom of God, is it? Who's the one that went justified? It's the one that said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The person who wasn't trying to play the games with everyone else and trying to put on the, the, the prideful shell that just says, look how amazing I am. Do you know how many people over the years we have seen that have walked as pillars in churches? My father have an affair and everybody goes, and they were stunned. And I was like, I'm not. I know what went on at home. I know what was going on in the back rooms. I know what the discussions were like in the car for years. But they faked it. They walked into the parking lot with baggage that desperately needed help and they had nowhere that they could take those bags. And so they kept them locked in the trunk. Don't tell anybody about it. Put on our perfect face and let's just walk in like we've got it all together. And sooner or later that catches up to you. And so when that happened, not making excuses for my dad's sin, not putting that on the church for sure. But when that happened, there was just this (gasps) shock. And I've seen that same story play out over and over and over and over. And it's amazing how many times the people that went, are the ones who are actually involved in the next fall. It's unbelievable how often that happens. Why do we do that? What is it about us that does that? Consider the story. You've got a guy wrestling with shame that just has the courage to come to Jesus and hold it out. And you got the Pharisees whose only concern is keeping the rules. Which one do you think illustrates the disciple of Jesus Christ in this story? It's B, or no, A. Which one did I do first? It's A. It's A. It's absolutely A. And and to give you an idea of the emphasis, and and that's when I say I get fired up about this, I I can tell you this for sure. I'm not the only one. So does Jesus. Because look at verse five. He looked around at them with anger, grieved. The word grieved right there doesn't mean sad. You know what it means? Infuriating. Furious. He looked at them with anger, furious at their stubbornness, hardness of heart. There's only one other place in the entire book of Mark where the emotions of Jesus are put, with such, put forth with such strong words, and that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nowhere else in the book of Mark are words like this used to describe what was going on emotionally in Jesus in that moment. And he looks at these guys, and he is furious. Righteously so, but furious. Why? Why was Jesus so upset about that kind of attitude? Because a church that cultivates that type of Pharisee mentality where we have to hide weaknesses and where we feel like we can't reveal the things we're struggling with to other people. And look, I'm not talking about bragging about our scars, all right? Just, we're talking to disciples in this room. That's the goal. I'm assuming as I talk that I'm talking to followers of Jesus who have an actual desire to follow Jesus, not to cover sin. It's Wednesday night, you got better places to be. So I'm, that's who I'm talking to without understanding. So we're not talking about like getting into a culture where we can just brag about all the crazy stuff we do and then just say, but at least we're covered. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about saying, I need help. I'm not talking about bragging about scars on the back end. I'm talking about coming into the ER because you're bleeding out. That's what I'm talking about. 
So why does Jesus get so frustrated with these Pharisees? Because when we create the kind of culture that, that is so concerned about image and rule keeping and making sure we all look like we got it together, what you do is you create a culture that prevents people from getting the help that they need. You create a room where people will never reach their arm out and get help. And so a guy like that's withered arm stays withered longer than it needs to. That's what I firmly believe. That kind of attitude will rob the church of the power of the gospel and will never see anyone change because no one will ever deal with anything because everything stays hidden and we'll just go around in our little glass houses and then it'll shatter and we'll freak out and then it'll happen again and then it'll happen again and then it'll happen again. Instead of having the understanding and the humility to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't live for my pride. I'm not here to put on a show for anyone else. I'm not here to get caught up in self-based effort. I'm not, and so that's what ends up happening, by the way. When you, when you have that sort of culture, like the church that I grew up in in particular, where we all faked it, then when you do have an issue, when there is something going on in your life and you need help that God wants you to change, the main source that you tend to go to is just self. My change has to be self-driven and self-motivated because I can't tell anyone else. And I'm not mature enough yet in my faith to be able to understand and leaning on God. I need a help. And, and I'm in a culture that just says, don't, don't stick your arm out. You better hide it. Better hide it in here. And that kind of culture is not going to see. I want heritage. I want to see. I think Jesus wants. It's a better. What I want. Who cares? I think Jesus wants to see his church become a church that's like the Statue of Liberty. You guys know the phrase? You know what's inscribed on the Statue of Liberty? It's the greatest thing ever for something just as this. It says this, keep, O ancient lands, your storied pomp. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse, a refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Couldn't that almost be scripture? Shouldn't that be like a hymn or something? I mean, really? That's so much better suited for the gospel than it is a country. It just is. But praise God for it. He says, all of your pompous, stuffed up, concerned with image, you guys just keep those. Send me the weary, the tired, the heavy laden, it might easily say. And I'll stand by the door with the torch lit saying that there's hope over here. Come over here and there's hope. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that beautiful? So how do we get that type of culture in our church? Mind you, I'm not talking about us having a church where we brag about our failings, where we glory in our falls, where we compare scars necessarily. But I am talking about if we wanna reach the culture around us for the gospel, we have to be able to cultivate the type of environment where someone that's struggling with something doesn't feel when they walk in like they have to get things together on their own in order to be grafted into the body of Christ. They gotta be able to feel like coming in here is the source of help and that there are people willing to hold the lamp, if you will, to be able to walk with them through their difficulties. And it starts when disciples of Jesus Christ in a place are willing to walk in that kind of openness and humility. And to not feign that we have it all together. 
to not pretend even for a moment that even the successes we have are based on our own self-effort, but instead to put everything back on Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do as disciples, everything. If your withered hand got healed, it's not because you stretched it out. It's because you reached to Jesus and he healed the withered hand. And, you know, I think of the book of Revelation where it speaks with regards to the testimony. It says this, talking about how Satan had been cast out of heaven and was ravaging the earth and tempting. And it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And then it says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. I've heard that taught lots of times. And I've heard people say, man, the the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, those are the two powerful tools we have against the temptation of the enemy. But I think you can't leave that third part out that says we love not our lives until death. In other words, you're not clinging to everything here. You're not fighting to hold everything together. You're willing to say, hey, kill me if you want. Run me out of town on a rail. But here's my testimony and just lay down that sort of pride that says, this is who I am. This is who I've been. And Jesus healed me. And when you have stories of victory where God has delivered you from things, praise God for that. But give God glory for that. Don't do the whole, I haven't done this in so many years. Do the whole, by the grace of God, he has spared me from this for this many years. But keep the attention turned on Jesus, not on our own self-effort. Let's not for a moment make people think that we are who we are because we got ourselves here. Because I think we know that's not true, don't we? The grace of Jesus Christ is what saves us and it is the grace of Jesus Christ that sustains us. And it will always be that way. It will always be that way. And when people fall, we don't, we're not happy about it. No one was thrilled to see my father have an affair and bail on the family. But when people fall, we're ready for it because we're not having to deconstruct our lives and all the lies that we've told to pretend who we are. We're not having to explain away a lot of things. We're just going, I I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And that way when he says, come forward, I'm coming. When he says, stretch out your hand, I'm stretching. I got nothing else to lose. And he is our life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is everything to us. He is not just a doorway into a club. He's the club. You know what I mean? He's he's not just a membership that we get into and now we just, we're like, good. He's everything. And we never for a moment ever stop depending on him. The moment we do, we're in trouble. Amen. I'm done. Let's stand and pray.